You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. Today we are talking to Greg Miller about Russian interference in the 2016 election, which has been referred to as the political equivalent of 911. That's according to former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. We'll discuss the state of the investigation into the Russian influence campaign and what's at stake for the public. Greg Miller is a correspondent for the Washington Post and a two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He is also the author of The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy, a book about his experience covering the Russian investigation and the Trump administration. Welcome to World Class, Greg. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. And welcome back to Stanford. Yeah, it's really nice to be back at Stanford. Let's start with the present and then work back. Where are we at in the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election? Well, I think there's two parts to that question. So by all accounts, Mueller is wrapping up. I know we've been saying that for a while. The end has been elusive, but you know it really does look like his investigation is numbered in days at this point. That means that a report would be transmitted to the Justice Department, and that will set in motion a whole bunch of other things that we really don't quite know how that will play out yet, and we can talk about that. But now, because of what happened in the election last year, that isn't the end of the investigation right. for Russia. Right? right. So now you have all of these committees in Congress, democratically controlled, House Intelligence Committee among them, that are only beginning to mobilize. They right. are only in the early stages of staffing up, hiring investigators, and identifying the targets that they want to go after over the next two years. So it will continue, you think, for quite a while? I do. In terms I, of investigation generally. Mueller will be done, but these other activities will Well, continue. Mueller will be done, and then there will be the investigations that have spun off from Mueller are also still in motion, of course. We've been looking, I think, for some time now at the Mueller report as, as sort of an endpoint, that this would be the finish line. It doesn't really look that way anymore, which creates a lot of interesting and difficult political questions, of course, as well for Democrats. We'll talk about some of them. Yeah. How do you see them as difficult? Well, I think that they have to make a series of calculations now about how aggressive to be, how focused to be on investigating the president and Russia to the exclusion of other issues that might right. matter to the public, right? right? And how to go about getting answers to these questions that are really, really important, I think, without seeming or coming across as partisan or not focused on the country's broader well-being. Let's go back then in time and let's talk about your book for a bit. The subtitle is a provocative one, The Subversion of American Democracy. Help our listeners understand what you mean by that phrase and what subversion did you research in the book? You're right that that is provocative language. And it's not to say that Trump's election, that the outcome represented a subversion. Right. It is more about Russia's interference and in 2016 their effort to undermine our one of what I, I think is our most precious sort of democratic mechanism, electing a president. And so the outcome becomes entangled in that, of course. Right. The, the Trump campaign was entangled in that. We don't, even at this stage, have all the answers to how deeply entangled. But there's no other way to look at what Russia did in 2016 except as an effort to undermine the American 
way of selecting our country's leader. So let's dig into that a little bit and, and help our, our listeners understand the various ways that Russia intervened. And then we'll talk about after that, can we assess any causality in terms of what they did? But just let's walk through, like, how do you see it? What were they doing? The different pieces, the media piece, the doxing, just... Yeah, right. So this was the first, let's start with the first thing we really learned about. And my colleague happened to be the very first reporter to have learned about this. The hack of the Democratic National Committee, Mm -hmm. the penetration of an American political party and its computer networks by a foreign adversary, which was not all that unusual in terms of an intelligence gathering operation, but highly unusual in terms of what Russia did with what it got. Right. So we'd never really seen a scenario like this where an adversary is not only rooting around in computer networks, making off with secrets, right. but then turning around and weaponizing them, turning them into documents to put out for the whole world to see, hoping to embarrass or damage this party. That was one huge part of it. And, and perhaps to the Clinton campaign, they may still see that as the biggest and most damaging part of it. I think they do, yeah. But of course, there was this other thing, too, that was happening, which was just a barrage of American social media platforms, our own companies, the companies that grew up right around us here at Stanford, the extent to which they were penetrated and exploited by Russian propaganda entities in 2016s was unprecedented. Right. And I write about that a lot in the book, right, in really colorful ways. You know, I had help from our correspondent in Moscow who was interviewing workers at the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. Right. Who were told us that they were required to watch like Netflix shows like House of Cards so that they could kind of Get a feel. learn the American vernacular and be better at coming across as authentically American while they're pumping Facebook and Twitter with uh, falsehoods and propaganda. Right. And remind again our listeners the Internet Research Agency was a... The Internet Research Agency is this weird kind of entity created in St. Petersburg by a long-standing ally of Vladimir Putin. I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of his name, so I'm going to leave that to you. (laughs) Prigozhin. Thank you. Basically, it's a building in which people are filing in day after day to do this social media work. People may not realize a lot of it is aimed at the internal Russian audience. They're generating propaganda for Russians to consume, pro-Putin propaganda for a domestic audience. But in 2015, also takes on this much bigger assignment to go after the United States election and aim a lot of material at us. So that's the second mechanism, the instrument. Let's walk through a couple others just so we have the full story. Just suggested it, but there also was normal Russian media, right? RT and Sputnik, and they also were active or not so active? Or how do you evaluate them? They were, they were active. They were doing a number of things, right? They were kind of courting contacts with senior kind of influential American officials, including Mike Flynn, right? right. Of course, he notoriously yes. goes to Moscow for a big event staged by RT. And they're also nonstop airing programming that is reinforcing a lot of the messaging that we were seeing from the Troll Factory. Right. So they're involved as well. Let's talk a little bit about the contacts, which you also write about. All the various Russians meeting with Trump organization people, people around. First describe it and then help us understand what kind of meaning you assess to it. I know when you look at that now, it's it's so bizarre. It's like 
was it not possible for Russians and Trump campaign people to not run into each other? Like, I mean, is it that hard to avoid Russians? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the connections, as we started learning about them at the Washington Post, were really alarming right. and confusing. Right. Yes. And, you know, and, you know, I was I was reaching out to you and, uh, and many other experts and, uh, and people who knew this space to try to figure out, well, is this unusual? What are we to make of all right. of these contacts that are happening? Who are these people and, and what are they up to here? And so you have, well, Robert Mueller and, and the investigation has has given us a lot of detail on these contacts uh-huh. on campaign advisors like from George Papadopoulos to Roger Stone to others who are sort of pinging around, interacting with Russians. But that's only the half of it, right? I mean, we're still waiting to learn more from Mueller, I think, about the extent to which Trump and his real inner circle, his family, the extent of their ties, their contacts and connections with Russians. Not only during 2016, but going way back, right? I mean, the, the financial ties, that piece to me seems to be the most, A, not well documented yet, but also could be some of the most damning things. Right? I agree, and I find that the, the most compelling, you know, that we, we're constantly facing this question, why does Trump act the way he does about Putin? Why Never is he so frequently right. echoing the Kremlin's talking points so consistently on message? What does Putin have over him? And why does he keep those meetings secret, too, as you've also written about, and not wanting anybody to be in the room, no notes? Highly unusual. I'm with you. I think that the financial entanglements and the financial interests of Trump and his organization are the most compelling explanation. I think it's possible that there is some Russian compromise on Trump, as the Steele dossier suggested. suggested. Right. But given what we know about Trump, it's hard to imagine that even an incriminating tape of some sort would give you definitive leverage exactly. over him. Right? Yes. <laughs> he's done some pretty extraordinary things. <laughs> right, so. and gotten away with it for yes. the most part. But the idea that he's pursuing a Trump Tower in Moscow virtually to the eve of the election. Right. Talk a little bit more about that in detail. What do we know? What was going on? Help our listeners understand why that's important. The story on this obviously has changed a lot just in the past couple of months because Trump himself told us for a long time that that was sort of a dead proposal, never went anywhere, and it was abandoned before the campaign. Well, now, courtesy of his longtime fixer, Michael Cohen, we know that In fact, that was never really abandoned during the campaign and was active, actively being pursued deep into the election until virtually the eve of the election, if not longer. To me, this is like really what Trump is all about. And I sometimes in these book events that I'm doing, I will ask this rhetorical question for the audience to try to reinforce this point. Do you think Trump would rather be highly regarded by history, for example, as a president or emerge from the presidency with a green light on Trump Tower, Moscow. <laughs> what would he choose, right? I don't know. Right. I don't know. He might choose Trump Tower. This is what drives him. He regards these sorts of deals and developments as above all else in terms of accomplishment. Right. So what he's to me, life, to me right? that is the much more compelling explanation for his subservience toward Putin. Mm-hmm. So two more parts out of the book. There was this very famous meeting with Veselnitskaya. I'll say that name for you, too. Thank that's, you. That's even hard for me. And Natalia Veselnitskaya and her entourage met with the president's son and Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and at the time, the chairman of his campaign. What do you make of that meeting? What's the significance of that interaction? 
There's two things there, I think. One, it really shows beyond a doubt that this was a campaign that was absolutely fine with colluding with Russia, even if we never see definitive evidence that it colluded with right. Russia. It was ready to go there. Intention is there, right? It was ready to go there. Two, this creates a lingering big exposure for the president, a problem for him, because he is so deeply involved in what you could call the cover-up of that, right? right? So he is the one who is, after yet another meeting with Putin, drafting a highly misleading statement and mischaracterizing what had transpired at that event. That's trouble for Trump from two directions. I write about this in the book. There's a third thing here that happens that jumped out at me when I put together the timeline for the book, the chronology. That meeting at Trump Tower happens almost to the day that a CIA officer is tackled coming back to the U.S. Embassy in right. Moscow yes. and beaten and punched in a fight for his life right, right on the doorstep yes. of the American Embassy. Crawls across the threshold back to safety, is evacuated with a broken shoulder. So to me, like the, the idea that here you have an American presidential campaign, the core the right. group of advisors meeting with a Russian, ready to take Russian help, while Russia is simultaneously pummeling a CIA officer in Moscow, it tells you a lot about how Russia sees this relationship and how we should see it. Right. Great observation on the, the, the coincidence of those two events, by the way. That's a door I used to walk through every day. One last piece on the Russians, and then we'll, we'll widen up the aperture. We also know, and you also know, that they were trolling around on various pieces of the electoral infrastructure. But at least, uh, let's just make sure everybody understands this, there's no evidence that they actually changed votes on Election Day, correct? Correct. That's the good news. They had the capability to or not? What's your take on that? We don't know. I mean, right. it's not hard to imagine that they might be in position to alter votes. Weirdly, this is a, a space where the uh, United States' archaic voting mechanisms work yes. to our advantage. <laughs> right. It's so obsolete that even Russia can't really seize control of it in a sweeping, meaningful way. Right. Yeah. But the administration was pretty worried about it. Yeah, I actually think that this is one of the things that the Obama administration was most worried about, that Obama administration officials will point to to explain why they weren't going after Russia more aggressively during the campaign. Right. There's a couple of things going on there. One, there's this assumption that Hillary's going to win. Right. She can clean this mess up when she's in office. Two, they're worried about provoking Russia over all this disinformation and propaganda and leaked email stuff, worried that Russia is secretly sitting on a much more explosive capability, pressing a button and detonating a huge attack on right. Election Day, right. and that that would be crippling. That would be crippling. You and can understand why they would be really, really worried about that. Right. And that was their focus. So last question on Trump-Russia. Some claim that the President of the United States was actually an agent of the Russian government. What's your response to that? I don't see it. I mean, I, I'm not saying I have definitive proof one way or another. I suppose it's in the realm of the possible. It hasn't been disproven, but I would be highly skeptical of that. I mean, the idea that he is a witting agent under the control of the Kremlin seems a little far-fetched to me. There are aspects of his personality and psychology, I think, that make him susceptible to manipulation by somebody like Putin, right? right? It's right. not that hard. You flatter Trump, you get a lot out of him, right? right? Kim Jong-un has learned the same thing. Yes. You send him nice letters, man, you get a lot of good press and right. love in return. But 
The idea that he is operating under some sort of control, I think that the available evidence argues against it and kind of common sense argues against it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if he were really a Russian agent, Putin would be running him very differently, I think, right? I think Putin would say, you know, go ahead and criticize me from time to time. Say something nasty about right, me here and right. there, That'd be a but lift smart. all those sanctions. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> That's a great point. And he doesn't ever criticize him, but hasn't been able to lift the sanctions. Right, he doesn't deliver on any of any of Putin's sort of really shopping wants. list. That's yeah. a great point. So how, you know, maybe last question, but it's a big, hard one. How do you think our democracy has survived two years into this investigation, two years into the Trump presidency? And, and here I'm thinking about three buckets that, that you have greater insight than most. One is, how do you think our executive branch has survived. I mean, if you think about the relationship between the president and the intelligence community, are they doing okay or are things straying there and is there lasting damage? The second bucket I want to hear you comment on is the relationship between the government and the media. And then the third, the government and more broadly, the checks and balances. I'm thinking first and foremost about elections and now the new Congress we have, but has American democracy survived? Is it worse off now or is it stronger as a result of reacting to this? Or is there gonna be lasting damage? The short answer is I feel like it's worse off now. It's possible that it could emerge stronger and that we don't, it's too soon, it's too early to know. You may have to help me remember some of the buckets that you were just laying out yeah, for me so here. First intelligence community and the executive, yeah, the White I, House. I, my the sense, you know well. yeah, my sense is that the intelligence agencies are doing what they do as well as they can do it under the circumstances and are doing their work, gathering information even though Trump largely ignores almost everything they put before him, they have nevertheless continued to do this important work and turn their attention to other customers, as they often put it, right? right. There's not internal and institutional damage. What I worry about is that there is external damage, right? Their okay. reputations right. are damaged. The perception of them by the public, it's to what partisan, extent has that right. been damaged by Trump's incessant attacks on them? These are secret organizations that don't really work unless Americans have a decent level of confidence in them, and Trump's doing everything he can to erode that. Right. What are the long-term implications? It's too soon to know. Now, what about the media? Media so and the state. The media and the state, I mean, I've never been through, I've never been through anything like this in my life. It seems like an upside-down world. We are constantly being attacked, criticized, baited, kind of taunted. Yes, enemy of the people, I think, by the, the phrase. By the president, and even though the press is almost always antagonistic toward the president and the executive branch. Right. It's the nature of the relationship. I remember that. We, yeah, I'm sure. House, yes. I'm sure you do. We, we tend to always at least hope or count on the president to kind of stand up for the principles right. of free press. And he doesn't do that at all. Right? right. He does the opposite. And so that's a real danger. This may be an area where the implications abroad are even more grave than they are for us here. We have annoying things now at the Washington Post. We don't allow tour groups in. We can't go into our mail room unaccompanied anymore because of safety concerns. I didn't know that. But I don't really worry about my ability to go to work day after day and safely do what I do. Journalists around the world, that's not the same. That's right? a great point. There is a, an increasing kind of culture of impunity for despots everywhere Right. in terms of what they can accuse the press of doing, get away with in terms of jailing or even killing them. Right. And the last bucket and last question, 
the electoral process. So we did have a different electoral outcome in 2018. Does that inspire you that maybe our institutions are robust and their checks and balances, or is it too early to say? No, I, I do feel that, I mean, it's not the outcome of the 2018 election that is evidence of its ability to, of that the things are working and, and, and reason for hope. I'm not saying because Democrats gain the House that that shows that everything's fine. It's more that that election happened the way it more or less was supposed to happen, uh -huh. right? Good point. It, it was carried off with minimal interference as right. far as we know, right. and it seems to reflect the broader views of the public, what right. the public wanted to see happen in Washington. And that's the way democracy is supposed, supposed to, work. to work that way. Yes, let's hope it keeps working that way. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, this was great, thank you. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you liked this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.